All right. This morning, as we can tell, obviously things are not going the way typically they would go. We would have Sunday school, then the next hour, then Sunday night. So, and because we have a lot of people out, so we're only having one service. So, I know we're working on Ezekiel, so we need to be on Ezekiel 39, but I don't want to really do that now and then try to catch everyone back up. We're in the middle of working on the study of the tabernacle, but I don't necessarily want to proceed that because then I would have to catch everyone up. So, uh, what we're going to do is we're just going to do kind of a, hopefully, and I, you know I'm not very good at these, but a standalone sermon, you know I'm not very good at that because it always turns into... A series, right. So, but I, this can't happen. So that means we may not leave till five. No, okay. But I'm going to try to just handle one passage. The only problem is to do it that way. You realize there's a lot of times we can't cover everything we want. So, but well, well let me, let me rephrase that. We can't cover everything I want. You may be more than happy to skip a bunch of stuff, but you know, I'm not. So, but we will see. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to be in uh, the Old Testament book of Isaiah and the New Testament uh, gospel of Luke. So if you want to at least have those places marked, I'll tell you specifically where we're going to be. Once you get those places marked, you can tell me, amen, the book of Isaiah and Luke, and I'll tell you where in just a minute. But let's begin with kind of a more of a question. And I think it's very, I think it's a very important one and one to consider. All right. When you, we all have perceptions of ourselves, right? We all see ourselves a certain way, right? Sometimes we may tell people we perceive ourselves one way, but deep down we think of ourselves of a different way. So I want you to think about how you see or perceive yourself and ask yourself this, do you see yourself in the following ways? Do you see yourself as poor, brokenhearted, a captive or a slave, blind, meek, and bruised. Now, those are all very negative ideas, right? Do you see yourself as poor, brokenhearted, a captive, a slave, blind, meek, and bruised? Now, typically, if we were to tell people that that's how we see ourselves, poor, blind, brokenhearted, meek, a captive, that would be seen as a very negative thing, correct? And typically, especially maybe within counseling, they would come along and say, don't look at yourself from this negative perspective. You need to see all the positives. You need to build your self-esteem. And they would try to approach it from that perspective. And sometimes, whether we want to admit this or not, the world's ideas, the world, the world's philosophies, even many psychological concepts are absolutely opposed to a scriptural perspective, right? So I want you to just, now we don't have time to really flesh this out, but I would like for you to think about if you saw yourself in all of those negative ways, poor, blind, brokenhearted, meek, captive, bruised, if you saw yourself in that way, what would be the negative results of seeing yourself that way? And what would be the positive results of seeing you that, that way? In other words, if you saw yourself in all of these negative descriptors, and you're like, that's how I see myself, would there be a positive thing that would come from that or a negative? Some would say that it would lead to very negative consequences and then they would seek to fix it by trying to improve the way you perceived yourself, right? But what would be the positive 
of seeing yourself in the negative way, would there be some positive elements that would come from that? Or would they all be negative? Now, the real question from a biblical perspective isn't, if you, I want you to think about this, from a truly biblical perspective, we, the, the, real, the issue isn't really, is it positive or is it negative? Right? I know that that's, that goes against maybe the typical way of thinking, but for Christians, it's not about whether it's positive or negative. The reality is, is it true? Right? Because truth may sometimes have a negative consequence. Truth may sometimes have a positive, but it doesn't really matter if it's negative or positive. We tend to, and our, and our, the philosophy of our culture today is whatever leads to somehow perceived benefit is then the philosophy to have. If it makes you feel better, makes you accept yourself, whatever, whatever makes you feel better, that's more important than what is true. I think, I think that's a, a relatively fair description of, of, philosophy in 2023. I think that's a a fair description. So what we're going to do is we're going to look in two passages. First one is Luke 61. The second one will be in, uh, or I'm sorry, Isaiah 61 and then Luke 4. Yeah, it's like there's not 61 chapters in Luke. Isaiah 61 and then in Luke 4 because those descriptors that I just gave you are found in Isaiah 61 and Luke 4. They are there, all right? So we're going to start in Isaiah 61 I know giving ourselves Isaiah 61 and Luke 4 is ridiculous and trying to do this in one sermon, but that means I'm not going to be able to give a lot of the historical background and a lot of the context, but we're going to be going for a specific kind of idea, right? So let's start in Isaiah 61. This one gives us enough to work on for a couple of years, but let's work on it, all right? Here we go. Isaiah 61, let's start in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. Now you see some of those descriptions there, do you not? Right? We see the the meek. Do everybody see that? We see the brokenhearted. Everybody see that? We see the captives. Everybody see that? And we see the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Now, some of the descriptions I gave are not found here. They're going to be found in the Luke passage, okay? But they're very similar in nature and what is being said here, okay? So there's a lot here that we're going to look at, but let's just look at some basic things that should jump out when you see when you read Isaiah 61, probably the first thing that may jump out at you is at least a Trinitarian concept. Everybody see the Trinitarian concept that kind of just leaps off the page? The Spirit of the Lord, everybody see that? So we have the Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord God, everybody see that? All right, so there's the Spirit, there is God, is upon me. Now, who is the me? If we identify the me, then we may get into a Trinitarian concept. Now, you'll see this in a minute. We won't go look at it now. Isaiah 61 is quoted in Luke 4 by Jesus, who says that the scripture is fulfilled in him, basically. Now, therefore, if we have Jesus, 
we have the Spirit and we have the Lord God, then the question is, whenever we read our Bibles or look at our Bibles, is do all three of those individuals, are they treated and described as deity? And we can all say, yes. Well, if all three are described as deity, that either gives you two options. One God or three gods. Well, we know there can't be three gods. So that means there are three distinct persons. Co-equal, co-eternal, but one God. All right. So we, we can see a Trinitarian concept. What else, another concept that should jump out off the page at you is the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach two words. Good tidings or good news. There's the gospel idea, right? Because when we refer to the gospel, we refer to the gospel as good news, right? So we have a Trinitarian concept. We have the gospel concept right here in Isaiah 61, okay? And we have, now, when it comes to the good news, the good news is being directed at specific well, specific groups of people, right? And those people are described. What are the descriptors for these people that are going to receive this good news? The poor, meek, brokenhearted, captives, and prisoners, right? Those are the people that this good news is for. Now, we know in a historical context, this may have something to do with those in Babylonian captivity, something to do with Israel, but clearly it it goes beyond that. And the reason we know it seems to go beyond that is because, go to Luke chapter 4. Go to Luke chapter 4, and this is where we know, wait a minute, there's more going on here. Luke chapter 4, right, everybody there? Start in verse 15, Luke chapter 4, verse 15. Luke four fifteen, and when it says, and he, who is the he? If you don't know, you can go back to verse 14, and verse 14, and Jesus, right? Returned to the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and there went out a fame of him through all the all the region round about. And he, the he, goes right back to Jesus, right? And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read, right? Because in their in their services they had scripture reading, correct? And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, or Isaiah, right? And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. So he's getting ready to read from Isaiah. He's going to read Isaiah 61, which we just read. And he reads, and this is the way it's recorded. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Gospel there is good news, right? He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, please note, he stopped. If you, can, you can look where he stopped compared to Isaiah 61. He left some things out. We'll have to get into why he left those things out in a minute. Right? He closed the book. He gave it again to the minister and sat down. And all the eyes of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. 
Now, all of it, so he reads Isaiah 61. He hands the book back. He sits down and everyone, and everyone is doing what? They're just watching him. It's like this dramatic pause. And what are they probably waiting for him to say? To expound it, to preach it, to explain it, to apply it. They're waiting for something, right? Now, obviously, if we go back to what is it, verse uh, 15, he's obviously, oh, we'll go back to verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and there went out a fame of him throughout all the region round about and he taught in their synagogues being glorified of all so that you you can almost imagine there, there's a possibility that if people knew Jesus was going to the synagogue that day that place may have been packed because of his fame and now he reads this and so everyone is going to be like oh, okay what's going to happen what's he going to say what is he going to say what is he going to say what is he going to say and then we know what he says right And he began to say unto them, this day, this scripture, which scripture? Isaiah 61. This day is this scripture. Everybody tell me, what does it say? Fulfilled in your ears. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of the mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? They are perplexed and they are confused because he just claimed that that had been fulfilled. Now, immediately they're like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, on one hand, for this to be fulfilled means that those words were just uttered to people who would have to fit what description? Well, just go look at the, one, the descriptions he gave in Luke. Okay? They are to be poor. Everybody see that? Brokenhearted, captives, blind, and bruised. Right? You see that? Blind and bruised. Well, he just basically said, if it's fulfilled in their ears and he's there to proclaim it, then he's telling those people who just heard it, that's the description of them. That's a pretty, that's a pretty serious thing, right? Now, they're more perplexed by going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Well, how is this fulfilled, right? How is this fulfilled? Because they're, like, they're a little confused there. But in a roundabout way, I don't know if they realize what they've just been told, Right? If I, if I stand up and tell you God has anointed me to preach good news to these kinds of people, and then I'm like, today it's been fulfilled, I'm telling you, you're those kinds of people. And I would say that they have a hard time acknowledging that that's who they are. I think so, right? I think they have a hard time acknowledging that. I think everyone would have a hard time acknowledging that. Now, the question is, we have, we have a very important philological question here even before we can proceed. Write those descriptions down. Everyone should write those descriptions down. You can, you can right now ignore the ones in 61, but look at the ones in Luke. All right, the first description in uh, Luke is what? Poor. Now, what's the obvious question we would have to ask ourselves right here from a theological perspective? Okay, is poor reference a material poverty or a different kind of poverty? 
right? Okay, well, we have to, that's a question we have to ask ourselves. Or is it both to some level? Right? What's the next descriptor? It's right there, it's open book. Broken hearted, right? Broken hearted, okay? Is that like an emotional broken heart? Is that a, what, what kind of a broken heart is that referencing? All right, next. Captives, okay? That gives us a little kind of clue what's going on. Captives, okay? Next. Blind, okay, blind. And then I think the last one is bruised. Right, bruised, okay? So those, we have to ask ourselves just right from the start, is this referencing very literal, like literal bruised, literally brokenhearted, a literal captive, literally blind, literally poor, or is Jesus, is this pointing to something different? I think there's possibly two elements going on here. Possibly two elements going on here. But this concept here seems to be relatively important in Scripture, all right? Because let's look at a scripture. I know it's not a perfect reference to Isaiah 61, but I think there's some connection here that could be uh, pretty important, all right? Because I, I think sometimes it's easy to overlook this, but I think it's something to consider, all right? For example, all right, uh, look at Luke chapter 7. Look at Luke chapter 7. Because this is just as not far out. I mean, Luke 4, and then we just go to Luke 7, and something happens here in Luke 7. All right? Okay, Luke 7. All right? Look at verse 19. Luke 7, verse 19. Because something, a, a, a situation happens here. Luke 7, 19, and John calling unto him two of his disciples sent them to Jesus saying, art thou he that would come or look we for another? Now where, John calls his disciples and goes sends them to Jesus. That's referring to John the Baptist. Where's John the Baptist at that moment? He's in prison. So John the Baptist, he's in prison. He's trying to figure out what's going on, right? And he's starting to question Is Jesus the one we're looking for? Because again, a lot of times when they think of the anointed of the Messiah and much of Jewish thinking, they were thinking of someone who would do what? Rule and reign, be a king and overcome their enemies. If John the Baptist is hanging out in prison, he may be thinking, "Uh, this doesn't seem to be going too well, right? Doesn't seem to be going so well. In fact, this is a hypothesis, right? This is, so don't quote this. John the Baptist was very bold in his preaching, was he not? Very bold. And in some ways you can may have argued he became even bolder once he kind of realized that Christ is the Lamb of God. If you, that if he realized Christ is the Messiah, then it would be very easy to be pretty bold, right? Hey, if the Messiah is here, come on. Who can I preach to now? What are you going to do to me? Because the king of kings is here and is going to conquer all of you. But then he finds himself in. Now, that's a hypothesis. No, I'm not saying, don't, don't tell you, I'm, I'm, I could be completely wrong there. But it is interesting. He gets really bold. And then when he gets in prison, he's kind of like. <laughs> What's going on? To me, I think there's something to that. That's just a theory, just a theory. Okay, so he sends his disciples, right? 
And then when the men were come unto him, when they were come unto who? Come unto Jesus. When they're coming to Jesus, they said, John, John Baptist hath sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? John the Baptist, I, I, to me, I read that, hey, I'm still in prison, so if you're not the right one, I need to find the one who can get me out of prison, okay? Because you're not doing a very good job as a Messiah, right? Agreed? And in that same hour, he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits. And unto many that were blind, he gave sight. Notice he starts doing certain things to certain infirmities, right? Okay. And then look what happens, verse 22. Jesus answered and said unto him, Go your way and tell John what things you have seen and heard, how the blind are, are, see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to, uh, to the poor the... Gospel is preached. Now, I'm not saying that's directly from Isaiah. Some of that is from, I think, um, Isaiah 35. But you can see a, a somewhat of a similarity with the Isaiah 61. The gospel is preached to whom? The poor. The blind receive sight. Now, Jesus, now let's make this very clear. This is very important. When Jesus is talking about the blind in that context, he's talking to those who are physically blind, and he's referencing to the poor there, he may be actually referencing to those who are physically poor. But it's possible that he is doing those things to those who have those physical realities to point to a spiritual reality. But clearly, Isaiah 61 is super important because Jesus thinks it's fulfilled basically when he reads it, because he's doing some of these things, he points in at least indirectly to John the Baptist to it. So Isaiah 61 is a very important passage in trying to figure all of this out. Now, I think there's an overarching concept to Isaiah 61 and Luke 4 that we have to get to before we break some of these descriptors down and see how this applies to us. And that is the year of Jubilee. So, grab a Bible dictionary and see if you can find an entry for Jubilee. All right. And if you cannot find it, I can help you. Because, I, well, I, I, I think I can help you because I closed it just a minute ago. But I can find it, yeah, page 710 in the Bible dictionary. This concept is very, I think, kind of over, kind of a, a concept you have to understand, and many commentaries pull this out. All right, everybody ready? And that period of time, in the Old Testament time, probably even leading up even into that, that period where Jesus is on earth, there was a, a, something referenced as the Jubilee year, right? Everybody understand this, okay? And the Bible dictionary describes it this way. Everybody looking at page 710? The f- Jubilee... The what year? 50th year after seven cycles of seven years when specific instructions about property and slavery took effect. And does everybody know what happened to slaves and property? Slaves could go free. If you were in debt, now you could get your land back. 
all, basically, it was a major time of jubilee because debts were forgiven, captives were set free. That language is very Isaiah 61. It's very Luke chapter 4. In fact, we can read a little bit more here. The word jubilee comes from a Hebrew word that means to be jubilant and to exalt. The word is is related to the Hebrew word for a ram's horn or trumpet. The jubilee year was launched with a blast from a ram's horn on the Day of Atonement, signifying a call to joy, liberation, and the beginning of a year for doing justice and loving mercy. The 50th year was a special year in which to proclaim liberty throughout all the land. A verse uh, inscribed on the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia, Leviticus 25.10, a verse is uh, inscribed on the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia. Specifically, individuals who incurred debts and had sold themselves as slaves or servants to others were released from their debts and were set at liberty. Since all land belonged to God, land could not be sold, but land could be lost to another for reasons of debt. In the year of Jubilee, such land was returned to the families to whom it was originally given. So people who were poor, people who were in debt, people who were slaves, what happened? They, everything was, re, they, was restored, people were set free. Does that have kind of a, a, a similarity to Isaiah 61 and Luke 4? It has kind of an, I think it's an overarching concept here, right? So Jesus comes along and is like, no, no, I'm the one who's going to take care of all of this. And it doesn't appear you have to wait 50 years. Because he just comes in and says, today it is fulfilled. Now, let's go back to Luke 4. And let's work through some of these concepts. All right, I won't be able to, because of time, to look up every cross-reference that I would like to cross-reference, but we're going to go through this, all right? Now, the first thing, go to Luke 4, that I want you to see. This is very important. Maybe I, I don't know if which part is the most important, but I think it's very it's key. All right, so the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel. Now, the idea of anointed, remember the anointed one refers to basically Christ. Christ is the anointed one. It's a reference to the... Messiah. It's a reference to the Messiah. This is the promised Messiah whom the Jews were looking for all of that time. And today, sadly, those who reject Jesus as being the Messiah, they're still looking for that Messiah, right? Okay. But Christ is the anointed one, the Messiah. And he has been anointed to do what? Preach the the gospel, to preach the gospel. Now, the word here means good news, announce, or glad tidings. Very similar to kind of Jubilee language, right? So Jesus had been anointed to preach good tidings, good news. Now the good news is for specific people as we've already identified, right? Now, good news first, now for something to be good news, you have to really, I mean like for something to be really good news to you, you're going to have to really recognize you're in this condition or it's not really good news. Correct? If you, if you don't see yourself in these descriptions, is it good news? Who cares? Who cares? So that, I think then the descriptions become very important. All right, so what's the first one that's listed? The poor. 
the poor is the first one that is listed. Now, the word poor here equals just the, the basic idea, the basic definition, a beggar, destitute of wealth, influence, position, honor. So this is someone who is a beggar, who is destitute of what three things? Or four things? Wealth, influence, position, and honor. Lowly, afflicted. Now this is very important. It also carries the idea of being destitute of Christian virtue and eternal riches. Now right there means it's going where? It's going beyond just the physical to the to the spiritual, to the spiritual. Now, this is very important because on one hand, did Jesus not preach to the poor? He did. He preached to the physical poor, but he preached to the physical poor, I think, to point to a different reality, and that is we are all spiritually poor. In fact, we are all spiritually beggars, We are all spiritually destitute. We are all spiritually, we don't have, we don't have anything. Because if you think about it, if the law is God's standard, that standard demands what? Perfection. And what kind of perfection? Internal and external. Perfection in mind, speech, desire, an action, and it must be a perfection that is perpetual, consistent, right? And we fall short. So immediately when we fall short, then we, in a sense, are in debt. We can't make it up. We could try, we could try, we could try, we could try. We're never going to make it up. We, we fall completely and absolutely short, absolutely short. So then the idea is, then what good news can be preached to us? But the point is, it's for those who are poor. Now, in that particular case, now, this is very important. Well, we'll, we'll talk about what, what can be done, but just realize that we are spiritually poor no matter how we want to look at it. Now, I know the bottom, the, the way most Christians present this is that, well, we were poor, but we're not poor now. But I, there's still a level in which we're poor. And we'll, we'll, we'll kind of we'll be more specific in a minute. But just understand that this poverty clearly, I think, goes beyond just physical poverty. It has to go beyond just physical poverty, right? Because then that would mean the gospel is only for whom? Poor people. Well, then when Nicodemus, was he poor? No. So then Jesus would have told him, hit the road. Not for you, right? The point is, it's not, or the rich young ruler, Jesus would have just told him, it's not for you. So we clearly know the poor there. I mean, I think we can all know it has to go beyond just a physical material wealth. This has to go to a spiritual poverty. I don't know if we how if we, how much how good we are seeing our spiritual poverty. Okay, so we'll we'll talk about because there's two aspects to it that we'll talk about. All right, so what's the second one? Broken hearted. Now this means crushed, shattered, broken into pieces. Crushed, 
shattered, broken into pieces. All right, that's the basic meaning of the word, all right? The next is blind. I don't think we need to figure that one out, right? We know what blind is, all right? Now, again, is it obviously this is just not for people who are physically blind because Jesus preached for people who could physically see, all right? So clearly, this is not going there. And then bruised means to crush, to break, break in pieces, Now, all of these have to have a spiritual element to some level. They have to. They demand it. All right? So let's go back through these and just look at some scriptures for some of these, and then we'll put this together because I think it's very important. All right? If we go to just go back to poor. So those are the basic elements. And I think I can already show you, it just makes no sense if we reduce this to physical poverty, physical blindness, physical brokenhearted, or physical captives. Because he preached to a lot of people who were not physical captives, right? So none of that would, it has to have a greater meaning. It has to point to a greater meaning. So let's just look at some scriptures really quick, all right? Obviously, we know things like, um, well, actually, let's just do it this way. Let's just do it this way. Because we could go through each one of these and I could find scriptures to try to show you. But I, I don't really need to do much doing that because I've already been able to demonstrate He wouldn't preach to anybody other than people who met this very rigid criteria. And we know he preached to everyone, meaning that everyone in some way, shape, or form meets this criteria. All right? So let's look at how we meet this criteria. Let's let's do that, all right? So we've already hinted at it, but let's look at it. First, how are we spiritually poor? Let's just go through each one of these and see how it it fits, okay? How are we spiritually poor? I've already demonstrated it. We are spiritually poor in light of what God's law demands. God's law, think of it this way. God's law demands a payment that you cannot pay. Meaning that you are a beggar. You can't borrow enough. You can't work enough. You are completely completely poor. Well, I think we can, that one's simple. That's, that, there's no, that's an, that's an easy one. God's law demands absolute perfection. You can't meet that perfection. Therefore, you are poor and you're incapable of being able to do anything. The next one is brokenhearted. Now, brokenhearted could go a couple of different directions here, right? But we know on one hand, we have a broken heart in which way? Well, our heart is broken, right? What does the Bible say about the human heart? Jeremiah chapter 17. Deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, all right? That is Jeremiah Jeremiah 17, 9, I believe. Now, to say that the human heart is deceitful above all things, that's pretty, that's broken, is it not? That's broken, broken, broken. And if we are remotely honest with ourselves, our heart is probably broken. Now, now we we have a hard time with this one, but our heart should be broken. I, I mean, at least most statistics say this. A lot of people go to counseling and go seek psychological help because of underlying feelings of guilt and shame. Well, I wonder why, where that underlying feeling of guilt and shame comes from. Well, because that law that tells us that we're poor is written where? 
on the heart. And so there we have something inside of us, no matter how hard we may want to try to deny it, that typically tells us what? You're messed up. You're messed up. You failed. You failed. You failed. Now we, we can try to pretend that we don't. We're like, ah, I don't care. I don't care what people tell me. I can do whatever I want. But sometimes when all the noise of the world goes away, there's something inside of us that just makes us feel guilty. Sometimes people say they feel guilty and they don't know why. I can tell you why. You've got a law inside of you that's written on your heart that constantly reminds you of what you are. You feel that to some level. You feel that guilt. You feel that shame. You're broken. Look, I don't care how many things you stop doing. You're never going to live up to the ultimate standard. It it may be you, you struggle with the standards that people put upon you or the standards you put upon yourself. But the real thing is the standard that God places upon you. So there's always something inside. So we're brokenhearted, at least just from that case. What's the next one? Captives. Captives, right? Everybody see it in Luke 4? Captives. Well, we're all captives to a certain way, right? Go to John 8, 34. Now this one we will look at a, a further reference. John 8, 34. John 8.34, I know I pivoted and kind of changed the way we're doing this, but that's okay. Look at John 8.34. Everybody tell me what you find in John 8.34. Everyone who commits sin is a servant to sin. Everyone in this room has committed sin, therefore we are all servants to sin. Not like we have a sin nature. We're captives, we're slaves. We're poor, we're brokenhearted, and you're a slave no matter how much you say you're not. You are a slave. Okay, next. What's next in Luke 4? Do we have agreement on what's next? Blind should be next, right? Everybody there? Okay, do we need to keep reading Luke 4? Right? Luke, let's, let's go read Luke 4 at least once since y'all are having a hard time knowing what comes next. Luke 4, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the number one, poor. It, he has sent me to heal the number two, brokenhearted. Number three, to preach deliverance to the captives. Number four, recovering sight to the blind. Okay? Now the blind, we are spiritually blind. I can, I'll just give you a bunch of scriptures really fast. Let's go to Ephesians 5.8. That's a quick one. There's a bunch of these that we could look at. Ephesians 5, 8. Ephesians 5, 8. For ye were sometimes, Ephesians 5, 8. Darkness, but now are ye light, and the Lord walketh children of light. In other words, there was a time we were in darkness. Darkness you can't see, Right? I can go on plenty of other scriptures. I can throw in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. I can go to John 12.40. I can go to Ephesians 5.8. You get the idea that we are blind. We are, do- we are in darkness. Now something changes. We'll get to the change in a minute. There is a blindness. How is there a blindness that is perceived in the world? Well, because we don't see the what. What, what, what are we? We have 20-20 vision seeing what? The material, the physical. When it comes to that which is spiritual, how is our vision? Well, without Christ, we are completely blind. 
As Christians, we can talk about what our vision is at that, at that point. But there's a spiritual blindness. What's the next one? In Luke 4? Bruised, okay? That idea of bruised is what? Anybody know? I was going to look up the Greek words for all of these, but because of time. Yeah, so, so it's oppressed, but it's, it's being oppressed in a sense where you're broken and you're bruised and you're beaten down, right? So it's the idea of being broken, smashed, beaten down, hurt. You're, 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 you're in a bad situation. You're, you're, you're kind of so pushed down, there's no one there to help you. All right? Those are the descriptors. All of us are those things in some way. Now, I, I know most churches are going to look at this going, that's what you were, here's what you're now. We're going to do that differently, but I want us to understand that is every one of us deep down. We are poor, we're brokenhearted, we're slaves, we're blind, and we're bruised. That is what we are at our very nature. Now, I know that goes against human psychology. Human psychology would tell you what? Stop thinking that way. Stop thinking that way. Well, I can understand why we don't want to have such a negative perspective of ourselves. But here's what. This is very important. Having a positive perspective is of no value if the positive perspective is not true, at least from a theological perspective. So here's what I want to do. Go to Revelation chapter 3. Go to Revelation chapter 3. Go to Revelation 3, because this is where I think things get interesting. Okay, go to Revelation chapter 3. And there's a certain church mentioned in Revelation chapter 3. Not Philadelphia. Starts with an L. The Laodiceans. All right? And look at what happens in Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, right? These things saith the Amen, faithful and true, witness and the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou were cold or hot. All right? What is their problem at this church? They're spiritually lukewarm. Now, this is interesting. He's writing to a church. He's writing to a church. I cannot stress this enough because we're getting ready to blow up how every pastor preaches Isaiah 61 and Luke 4. We're about to completely just go off the road and be declared heretics, okay? But that's okay, all right? Because I I don't like the way everyone else preaches this, okay? Here we go. He's preaching to a church, right? This is, I mean, Jesus writing to a church. He says, hey, hey, your works are not cold nor hot. I wish, but so then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of thy mouth. And then look, what is the cause of all of this? Why can, why are they so apathetic, complacent and lukewarm? What is the cause? What is the very next word? Because thou sayest, who is the thou? Those in the church. And what do they say about themselves? I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. 
They, now, when it says they're rich and in need of nothing, he, they're referencing actual physical wealth as a very wealthy city, a very wealthy church. These people don't need anything. And then what does he turn around and say to them? You knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Does that not sound very similar once again to Luke 4 and Isaiah 61? Sounds very similar. Very similar. So, okay, everybody now ready to try to bring all of this together? Now, I know there's a lot of references there and a lot of uh, trying to prove a lot of things that I didn't get my, my natural way to go, but I was looking at the clock and I just had to make a, an editorial decision to change my path, my, my, my path here. Okay, I want you to look at this. This is very important. Okay. Take a piece of paper and draw down the middle. On one side, you can put the lost, those who are not saved. Anyone who's not a Christian, guess what they are? Blind, or go back to Luke 4, what's the correct order? Poor. I'm going to keep making you say it over and over and over by the time you leave here. If you don't get anything, you're going to know the correct order in Luke 4, right? Poor. Brokenhearted, blind, captives, bruised. All right? That is the state of every human being who is not saved. That is their spiritual condition. That is where they are. You can't expect anything else. They are in debt to God. They can't pay that debt. They're brokenhearted. Their heart is broken and deep down. They know they're guilty of something, even though they can't pinpoint where that guilt feeling coming from. They may even say, I don't even know what I've done. It doesn't matter. Look, the most perfect person who's raised in a Christian home, who's never done anything anywhere close to the things I've done wrong, you're just as guilty of me because you're guilty of God's law. So that guilt is still there. You're a captive to sin to your sin nature. You're bound to it, right? There's no way to get around it. You're bruised and broken and oppressed. That is the reality. Now, what we do is we come along and say, okay, okay, but Jesus preaches the good news, the gospel. And typically that is presented, go back to Isaiah 61, because there is some beautiful language in Isaiah 61. Go back to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, look at verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord my soul. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. For as the earth bringeth forth her bud, and as the garden causes the things that are sown and to, sp- to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. Now please note, he has clothed me with... The garments of, what does it say? Salvation. Salvation. And then it describes someone who, that person that he's describing there does not sound like someone who is poor, someone who's brokenhearted, someone who is what? 
a captive, someone who is brute. It doesn't sound like that, right? It sounds like someone who is free and now clothed and they have everything that they could possibly want. And now what are they doing? They are rejoicing. Now here's the key. This is the way it's typically preached. Hey, before you are saved, what's the order in Luke 4? Poor, brokenhearted, blind, captive, bruised, right? That's the, that, and we can all agree that is true of anyone who is not saved. But then we, in most churches, when this is preached, are like, but I got good news for you today. That's what you were, but now you are not. Because we do have scriptures that would seem to indicate that, right? We were blind, but now we see. We were poor, but now we are rich. We were captives, but now we are set free. We were brokenhearted, but now we have a new heart. We were bruised, but now the medicine of salvation has been applied to us. And that, oh, that preach is good. And everybody says, amen. And everybody will rejoice and everybody will get all happy. The only problem is, guess what? You're still all of those things to some level. And to say that you're not is the most ridiculous, I I will say, psychologically scarring thing that Christianity does because you try to tell people of a reality that doesn't actually exist. And that is cruel. That is messed up. So then how do we understand, how do you go from poor, broken, all of those things, right? How do you go from that to the Isaiah 61 passage where you're clothed now in the garments of of righteousness and, and everything is wonderful and everything's great? How do we understand that? Remember, there are two elements to the Christian life. And what are those two elements? And we've talked about them a million times. There's two elements, They both start with a P. Oh, come on. Everybody in this church should know this. I only talk about this on the podcast, like 80,000. Do what? Positional and practical. Okay, right. Positional refers to what? The positional reality of who we are in Christ. What are we in Christ? Are we poor? No, we have been made rich. Christ became poor for us so that we may be become rich. That is true positionally. In Christ, listen, listen, in Christ, do I owe anything? I don't owe anything because it's all been paid for. And what, and I've been, what not only has it been paid for, what have I been given? An imputed righteousness. An imputed righteousness, meaning all of God's standards that he demands, I have. Right? That's why when, when the over and over the New Testament says we're going to be judged according to our works. And we say, and remember, our only solution to that is what? His works become my works. So then what the works that he demands, we have because all of Christ's work is imputed to me. Other than that, there's nothing else that makes any sense. Other than people say, well, your works prove you're saved. If your works prove you're saved, we're all in trouble. Because what, what kind of works would prove that I'm saved according to God's standard? Perfect. Does anybody have it? So then nobody is safe. So that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Okay. So, so positionally, I'm no longer poor. What's the second thing after poor? 
<laughs> Y'all are having some serious problems. Y'all can just keep Luke 4 open, everyone. Okay, is it broken hearted? Does everybody agree? Yeah. Right? Okay, we're no longer broken hearted in what way? Well, positionally, positionally, guess what? All my sins are taken care of, right? All, I'm completely free. I'm no longer a captive. I'm no longer broken hearted. I'm no longer bruised because all my sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. They've been thrown in the deepest sea. Everything is wonderful and great. Positionally. Practically, guess what I still am? I'm still a sinner, so I'm still poor. I'm still brokenhearted because I don't know about it. Do you ever feel the weight and guilt of your own sin and your own shame and your own failure and your own not living up to God's standard? I mean, all you have to do is read the Bible for five minutes and you say, woe is me, I don't do that. And if you say you do do that, you need to write a book telling me how you pulled it off. And the first thing I'm going to ask is, obviously, how did you overcome this, the thing of lying? Because your whole book is full of lies. Okay, but all right, I, I digress. Practically, we still fall short. And that's a weird dynamic to find yourself as a Christian. Everyone wants to say, well, in Christ, you're a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. That is true positionally, not true Practically. Not true practically in any way, shape, or form. Because if you were a new creature and the old was gone and all become new, then what would be true of you practically? You wouldn't sin. So it's not true. So we have these two realities that we live in as a Christian. The positional and the practical. Now, how does that work? Well, then this is a weird thing to see. There are times in your life you need to reflect and realize that in Christ, you're no longer poor. You're no longer brokenhearted. You're no longer a captive. You're no longer bruised. On one hand, you have to see that. And then what should be your attitude? Go back to Isaiah 61. Your attitude should be, I will greatly rejoice and the Lord, my soul shall be joyful in my God. There should be rejoicing and joy in the fact that you're no longer those things positionally. You should rejoice and there should be joy. The greatest joy in your life should be that I'm no longer poor. I'm no longer brokenhearted. I'm no longer a captive. I'm no longer bruised. That's where your joy should be. But you can, you, I, let me tell you something. A lot of people don't feel that. A lot of people sitting in the church don't feel that. They don't find any joy in it. Because after all, you just take it for granted. You take it for granted. You don't see that. When you realize what God has done for you, you rejoice and you feel joy. And why? What does the text say? I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My, my soul shall jo- be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation and covered me with a robe of righteousness. To be clothed in the garment of salvation and covered with a robe of righteousness should be the thing that brings you the greatest joy in life. Everything you could, everything should be able to be taken from you. And you're like, just don't take this robe. 
Just don't take these garments. The house can burn down. I could end up dead, isolated with a disease. And, and, and I should still be rejoicing because I have that garment. But you know what we treat that garment as? We don't stinking care about it. We take it for granted. We take it absolutely for granted. So on one hand, we should be able to go, man, I'm so gr- grateful for this. That, so on one hand, understanding the positional reality about Christ preaching the gospel to you and you're no longer those things. So positionally, what are you not today? Poor, brokenhearted, captive, blind, bruised. Positionally, you're good to go. So you should have a sense of rejoicing, a sense of joy that should be overwhelming. Like nothing else in the world, the world should be able to touch that rejoicing or joy. It's like everything else in your life is falling apart, but you have that. But we don't appreciate it. We don't because guess what we want? I don't want God just to give me a garment. I don't want God to give me a robe. I want God to do something for me now. I want my situation to be better. I want certain things. John the Baptist wanted what? Out of prison. And Jesus was just kind of basically telling, Isaiah 61 is being fulfilled. You should be happy. And it's like, ah, nope, nope, I want. And you can understand that, right? I don't condemn that. I don't condemn that, that attitude. But Paul talked about learning the state of contentment. The way to learn to be content is that you greatly rejoice and joy over those garments, the garment of salvation, the robe of righteousness, that positionally you're no longer poor. I just don't think sometimes we, we understand our situation. We think we're better. We think we're okay. Sadly, we're kind of like, not to pick on young people, but we're kind of like arrogant teenagers who don't think we need anything. Think, ah, I don't need any of this. Well, yeah, you, 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 may, not, you may think you're all good, but trust me, deep down, you're just as messed up as everyone else. And your only hope is in Christ. But we take it for granted. Right? We take it for granted. We see it all the time. Now, look, and, and, and we, we can see it. We, if we wanted a vivid illustration of what we are as adults, if we want a vivid illustration of what we are, all you got to do is wait till Christmas, right? And tell the kids, you got Jesus. You don't need anything else. What do you think the reactions will be at home? Even if you don't hear it, just go read their text messages. They're texting their friends. My loser parents, this is trash. This is stupid. This is garbage. This is blah, 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 blah. You know, beep, 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 beep. A lot of words I can't repeat, right? But guess what? We're the same way. We're the same way. As soon as something doesn't go, as soon as we don't have what we want, what do we do? (laughs) And we fall down and it's the end of the world. Instead of saying, man, I got, a, I got the garments of salvation and a robe of righteousness. That's where our joy should come from. 
our joy is but that in Christ all of that is met spiritually. Clearly we know he doesn't take care of blindness and poverty and that physically for everyone. We know that because there's plenty of people who've even been saved who are still blind. So we know he doesn't fix that. Physically, we know that. Anyone who thinks that is just being absurd, right? He did so physically when he was on earth to prove the spiritual, right? I mean, there's no other way to get around that. Now, now here's the thing. So we, so when we remember our positional, what should we be filled with today? Rejoicing and joy. But we are to never forget our practical reality. And why are we to never forget our practical reality? That practically, even as a believer, guess what we still are? Man, I got nothing to give God. I'm a sinner. Brokenhearted, man. I don't know about you. I feel like David sometimes in Psalm 51. Was he brokenhearted in Psalm 51? Yeah, because guess what I know? Against you, Lord, have sinned. And only you have sinned. Oh, and I've also heard all kinds of other people because, you know, David had someone killed, you know? So, yeah, I mean, he, he, he done some, I've done some really messed up things. God, David, we've all done messed up things. Right? What's next? Bro, broken hearted? Captive? We, we all know we're a captive. I know Christians love to say, we've been set free by Jesus. Well, if you've been set free by Jesus, never commit another sin. We know that can't happen. If you can't stop sinning, that means something still controls you. What could that be? A sinful nature. So that means I'm still captive to some level. I'm blind to some level, right? Do you, do you understand everything? Do you understand what God is doing 90% of the time? I sure don't. So I know I'm still blind, right? I'm still bruised and oppressed. So guess what? Now, here's the thing. If understanding my position, I should rejoice in joy. I'm clothed in the garment of salvation, the robe of righteousness, man, joy, rejoicing. What should it do when we realize that practically we're still those things? What should be the reason doing that? Well, Revelation 3 is where we find the answer. Because they did not see the reality of their spiritual condition, they had become spiritually lukewarm, apathetic, and complacent. So what should seeing our positional reality do? Our posi- or, I'm sorry, what should uh, our practical reality do for us? It should keep us what? Broken, humbled, and constantly knowing our only hope is in Christ. It should, it should, in fact, the more I see the reality of my practical existence, the more I know I must, can only rely on my positional reality, which will only make me do what to my positional reality? Appreciate it more. Should greatly, I should, I would absolutely make me appreciate it more. But people don't appreciate it. People don't appreciate it. You, you can tell when young people don't appreciate it. You can tell when adults don't appreciate it because they just don't care. 
Yeah, whatever. I don't care about Jesus. Don't care about God. Don't care about the Bible. Yeah, I know you don't care because you don't appreciate what has been done for you. But when, because you probably don't understand your practical reality. Because if you understand your practical reality, what is your only hope? Is your position. Because practice, are you going to pull it off? No, you're not going to pull it off. So, and go back to Revelation 3, just really quick, we'll end there. We'll just end with this. Yeah, we're already over an hour, that's what happens. Okay. And I know most churches would have been able to cover this entire sermon in 30 minutes, but you know, that's okay. Revelation chapter 3. Just please note that again. He, said, he tells them, I know your works, that they are neither cold nor hot. I would that they were cold or hot. Verse 16, or Revelation 3, 16. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of the mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the uh, shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye slaves, that thou mayest see. Now, the only thing is, we can't buy that, right? Well, how do we purchase it, in a sense? It's something that we can't buy. It's something we obtain by faith, right? But they, they couldn't see, And I will argue modern day evangelicalism is the very thing that has blinded people and not seeing. Because modern day evangelicalism tells you when you come in Christ, you don't need anything now because you're a new creature. The old is gone. Everything is good. You're good to go. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. That's all you ever hear. You can do it. 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 How do you know you're saved? Because look at what you do. Look at what you do. Look at what you do. And, and basically, it's a modern, day, a modern day evangelicalism is nothing more than secular counseling where you give people the power of positive thinking to perceive that they're doing more than they're actually doing to convince themselves that they don't need anything. When the reality is you're poor, wretched, miserable, and broken, and you don't realize it. Because that's the reality of us in our practical state. And that practical state should make me think, if God does not clothe me in the garments of salvation in a robe of righteousness, I'm in trouble. But the positional reality, I should be rejoicing in joy. And the practical reality, I should be broken and humbled, and it should make me then appreciate. And what was Paul's whole argument in Romans 12? What should lead someone to present themselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is their reasonable act of worship? What is the thing that motivates that? Everybody know Romans 12? Okay. I I may want to practice some scripture memory, okay? I beseech ye therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. What should motivate them to the self-sacrifice? Mercy. God's mercy is the motivating factor. God's mercy is the motivating factor. Gratitude is the motivating factor. That gratitude is seen because in my position, I am no longer poor, no longer brokenhearted, no longer a captive, no longer blind, and no longer bruised. Amen? But in reality... 
practically, I'm still all of those things to some level. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon, Lord. Very simple, straightforward message. Forgive us when we take for granted your, uh, the position we have in you. And Lord, forgive us when we are so blind to the practical reality of what we still are. Help us balance these two realities in a way that we move forward in our spiritual life instead of moving backwards. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,